Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. It is good to be with you all this morning. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be um, studying this morning together verses 1 through 9. And just by way of reminder, um, children are not dismissed for Praise City. It's a holiday weekend. That will start up next week. Um, and so y'all are trapped, and Paul's going to talk to you this morning. I'm just kidding. Although we don't have youth group tonight, so I've got to get everything out right now. Um, so again, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Um, so we're nearing the end of our time in Ephesians. This is actually the second to last week. It, if it kind of feels like the train's just rushing onto the end, and then boom, we're stopping. And in case this is your first week with us during this sermon series, I want to take a moment and just set the stage as to where we've been and how we've arrived where we're at in Ephesians. And so if you remember, if you've been with us the whole time, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about the indicative. And what that is, is it's the truth of what God has done for his people. It's the mystery of his love for, for sinners, people who have rebelled against him. And by his grace, he's brought in to his family. He's called them sons and daughters. And it's the mystery that in Christ, all of these walls of hostility are being broken down. The things that divide us up in history and in real space and time, Christ is breaking them all down and making one people in him. Something the world never could have imagined would happen is happening in Christ, Paul says. And with all of that laid out, then he turns in chapter 4 and all the way to the end of chapter 6, as we'll see next week, he talks about the imperative. That is, how we now get to live in Christ. If God loves us in this way, if in Christ these walls come tumbling down, how do we get to live in Christ with the grace and peace we now have from God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit? And in particular, last week, we saw Paul speak specifically into um, the circumstances at home, starting with wives and husbands in the context of marriage. And we saw how in Christ, marriage becomes a sacred canopy. It becomes a place for a husband and a wife together to love one another and to experience the reconciliation um, that, that they have in Christ in a way that reflects Christ's own love for the church. And that then points to the world and reflects to the world Christ's love to the church. Not perfectly, of course, but in a tangible way that can grow and become something remarkable and beautiful by God's grace. And now we're going to see this morning, Paul is pivoting and he's turning to other relationships that many of us experience every single day. He's going to talk to children and to parents and then to employees and employers. And we're going to have a lot of things to unpack here to think about what this means for how we live today and what he was saying to the people in his own day. But before we get into all of that, I want us to kind of focus our time by considering a question together. And that question is this. Do you view your family life and or work life as a field of opportunities or as a set of restraints? Another way of asking that question and of thinking about do I view it more as opportunities or as restraints is this. Do you find yourself often saying, I just got to get through this and then I can do that? And usually we say that phrase, I just got to get through, usually about things at home, um, kids in teenage years, um, kids in diapers, or we say it about work, you know, this project that's literally consuming every waking second of my focus. I just got to get through that. Then I can focus on discipleship. Then I can be present in worship. Then I can be nice to my family I can have friends and, and be hospitable and things like that. And so a lot of times as we get on and get going in life, we, we had all these expectations, and as we get older, we start looking at our circumstances, and we compare that to the person we see in the mirror. We compare that to the circumstances we're actually facing, and our expectations seem dashed, and we can get discouraged and feel like everything that we're actually going through is just holding us back from everything we want it to do. 
and good things you wanted to do, things in the Lord. And so if that's where you find yourself this morning, feeling more bound by your circumstances at home or at work, don't fret because this passage is, is very encouraging to us because Paul is going to show us how in Christ the gospel has real power to work in our lives right here, right now. And so the key truth for us this morning is that in Christ our life at home and at work provides daily opportunities for us to grow in our love of God and love of neighbor, both unto God's glory and for the life of the world. And so in other words, as we're going to see our family and work life, it's not a barrier or set of restraints that gets in the way of our discipleship, that gets in the way of our growth as Christians. It's actually the very arena where discipleship happens, where we grow most. We don't grow in a vacuum. We grow in the daily rhythms of real life, which includes changing diapers and leaving two hours before work starts to fight Atlanta traffic. Like that, as restraining as it can feel, that is life, and that is where Christ is present with us, growing us. And so as we approach this text, it's very important that we recognize we're not coming here to get a bunch of techniques or modified behavioral programs from Paul. Um, especially when you think about parenting, for example, it's really easy to think like the Bible's just a, it's gonna give me like Christian steps on how to raise my kids so they don't go crazy or so I don't go crazy. It's probably more what it feels like. But what we need is not just better techniques and not better behavior. What we need is a paradigm shift. We need to be able to see what is already in front of us. We need to see how being united to Christ changes everything. And so I love the way Eugene Peterson defines this. Look at, look at that passage that I put in the bulletin there. He says, Paul doesn't give detailed advice or counsel. He doesn't hand out official Christian counsel on how to raise our children or get along with our spouses. What he does is replace our understanding of our already culturally defined roles with a Christ-defined role. Every aspect of our family and work life is redefined in relation to Christ rather than to what we have grown up with as wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children, slaves to masters, masters to slaves. In other words, what Paul is trying to teach us here is how our union with Christ changes our entire experience of all of the relationships we have in the everyday. We're going to see how life with Jesus gives us opportunities to grow where we often least expect it. And so with that in mind, would you, would you turn to the text with me as we hear God's word for us as people? We're going to start with verses one through four and see what Paul has to say about family life in Christ. So hear the words of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, first thing to notice straight away is notice who Paul speaks to first. He speaks to children first. He's following the exact same pattern he started that we saw last week where he spoke first to wives and not to husbands. He talks to those that society said were last and he puts them first. And he says, you too have value. You too have a meaningful life to live in Christ. And so he starts by speaking to children and he'll continue to do that by speaking to bond servants before he speaks to masters. He is turning things upside down and actually putting things right in Christ just in the order of the people he's talking to. And the other thing to notice here is that Paul is talking to children, which means he's assuming that children are present, and not just present like sitting there um, just suffering in worship, but actually they're participating in it. 
because he has something to say to them. So he's assuming that they're, they're going to listen at least a little bit. And so especially if you're younger than 18 this morning, and there's a good number of you here, um, and a lot of you I know pretty well, um, track with us here. Because this is a point where Paul's speaking specifically to you. And at first glance, you might be like, come on, man, like this is a trap. Because the first thing he says is obey my parents, and is that really all he's got to say to us? Like that, that just doesn't seem very exciting. Um, and if, I get it. I get it. I'm not, I just had a birthday, but I'm not that much older than you all. I remember that very well. But I would challenge you, and I seriously would challenge you, make sure you understand what Paul's actually talking about. Because usually when we think about obeying our parents, what we think about is just doing whatever it is they want instead of what we want. And that is not what Paul has in mind here. Paul doesn't say, hey, you should obey your parents because they said so and because they're in charge. I mean, that's all true, but it's maybe a sliver of the truth. There's something bigger going on here. There's a bigger purpose your parents play in your life. And if you're not careful, you're gonna miss it. And so notice, Paul encourages children to obey your parents, not because they're in charge, not because you have to, but Paul says you should obey your parents because this is right. And he doesn't just mean right as in not wrong. Like, do this and you won't get in trouble. It's right. You know, if you don't want to be grounded for life, just obey your parents or at least pretend to or at least look like it. No, what Paul is saying with that word right is it goes back to the same root word righteous. If you were to flip back a page and look at Ephesians 4, verse 24, Paul was talking about how do we all, children and adults, grow as disciples? He says, well, that happens by the Spirit working in us, making us more like Jesus, and that happens by growing in righteousness and holiness. And now here comes that word again. Right or righteous is the reason Paul gives for obeying your parents. So it's not just that they're in charge, it's that this is actually a way where you grow to be more like Christ. And in fact, in a very real way, because if you look at Luke 2, we see an example where Jesus obeyed his parents. And here you've got, you have to see the irony. Here's the creator of the universe, the eternal son of God, and his parents forget him at the temple. It's like if you've ever been as a child left at the shopping mall um, or left to church, especially if you're in a big family, the odds of that happening go way up. Um, so Jesus feels you. He knew what that was like. Um, and he wasn't mad. He was actually schooling um, a lot of people about God's word. And yet his parents come back and he submits to them and goes home with them, even though they didn't quite understand what's going on. So when you obey your parents, there's a very real sense in which that helps you grow to be more like Christ. But that's not the only thing Paul says. Notice he quotes the fifth commandment and he highlights not just that this is one of God's commandments, but he also says this has a promise attached to it. And the promise is that it would go well with you, that you would live long in the land. And so what Paul's saying here is he's not saying, all right, kids, if you take out the trash and do your chores, you're gonna live really, really, really long. It's not a commodified exchange. What he's saying is your parents have been given to you to guide you and as you obey them, that's going to help shape you into the kind of person that can live a good and a meaningful life in a very hard and very broken and very often scary world. So your obedience is not just to chores and tasks, it's to instruction and wisdom that's gonna shape you into the kind of person that's going to live a good life in Christ. Not a perfect life, not a life free of suffering, but a life that can handle those things because God has blessed you with two people who are gonna love you and are going to walk with you to help you understand how to navigate those things. But I'm sure a lot of you guys know that already and you're like, all right, I get it. I know that, I know my parents are a gift, so what's the big deal? But again, I wanna push back on you. I wanna ask you, yeah, you might know that is information in your brain, but are you experiencing that? 
Are you experiencing your parents as a gift from God for your good? And if not, why? And how much of that has to do with you and your assumptions about them? Because especially if you're a teenager, you are entering a very unique point in life and a very difficult point in life. And it's a point where your parents can be a point of strife because you're a point of strife for them too, or it can be a point where your parents can be an amazing source of wisdom and love for you when you need it most. Because as you become a teenager, you realize really fast that life is hard and not everyone wants to be your friend, even if they pretend to be. People are gonna say things to you. They're gonna make you question who you are. You're gonna feel really insecure. They're gonna do things that make you feel left out. And you're gonna be wondering, where's my place in the world? And yet, notice the goodness of God that he'd give you two people who have been through that themselves and who are with you even when you don't wanna be with them, even when you push back and fight and scream and yell and say things like, I hate you guys. They still love you. And they're there with you. And they're there to help you work through those questions no matter what. And so Paul's challenge to you, children and parents, or sorry, children and teenagers, it's to fight hard, fight back against your immediate response, and fight hard to experience your parents as a blessing. And remember, they are a gift. And lean hard on them as a source of wisdom and love when you need it, because that's their calling. And if that's hard for you to do as a, as a kid or a teenager, you can be honest with your parents about that. And that can be scary. But notice there are two ways, if you haven't figured this out by now, there are two ways you can ask the question, why, when your parents tell you to do something. There's the way where you're just being ornery, and your parents are like, hey, please go clean your room. You're like, why? It's just going to get messy again next week. You know, and there's the defiance way. A lot of us are really good at that. But then there's another way of asking why, where they say, no, you can't go see that movie. Or no, we don't really think that person's a good friend for you. We don't think you should date that person. And you might be heated and you might be like, I don't understand why, but if you can spin that background and be like, but help me understand, like, you know, Paul says you're making these decisions to help me grow, so how is this supposed to help me grow? Because it really doesn't feel like it. And parents, that is then exactly where Paul's exhortation to you becomes really important. Because you have to ask yourselves, do your kids feel safe telling you where they're actually at, telling you when they don't understand? Are you cultivating a family life where they can say, Mom, Dad, I feel like you're not understanding me, and I don't understand your decision. Can we talk? And straight away, you're probably like, man, I don't know whose household you're in, but my kids don't talk that way, and they never will. And I'm not saying like we should expect in Christ that our kids are going to be some sort of like baptized Brady Bunch and are going to be like all hunky-dory and, you know, talk really, really sweet all the time. But I'm, I am saying that Paul would challenge us to say, do you assume that strife and disobedience and rebellion are a foregone conclusion. I mean, yes, those things come naturally to us outside of Christ and in our flesh and because of our sin, but they're technically not normal. They're the abnormal result of the fall. And in Christ, it is really hard, but it is really possible to become a family where not strife and rebellion, but grace and peace are the foundation and are the dynamic. And again, that's messy. We, as soon as I say that, we all think of like something, again, like some baptized Brady Bunch, just awesome, no mess, nothing, all smiles. But in reality, that's messy. That's a process. That's a journey. That's a dynamic. But it's possible in Christ. And so the first question as parents is, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is hope? Even if you feel like your kids are just running in every direction because they're young or running far away from you because they're getting older and you're scared, do you believe that in Christ, the story's not done because he reigns? It's not ever gonna be perfect, but it can become better in Christ. 
And so Paul gives parents a really good diagnostic question and challenge. He addresses this specifically to fathers, and that's not because mothers don't have a role to play. Um, we were joking in the Q&A before church, like it's not like fathers can't provoke their kids to anger, but mothers, you know, they can be the bad cop and do whatever they want and be like, ha ha, gotcha. Um, Paul's speaking especially to fathers because in that day and age, um, fathers were pretty absent from their family. You know, they'd come in and make snap decisions and be like, sorry, you lost your inheritance because I don't like you today. Like, that was a legit option in the Roman society. So Paul's pushing on them and saying, be present and make decisions that are gonna be good for your kids. And so for us, of course, that applies both to fathers and mothers. And so the question then, the way this lands is, do you refuse to let your kids ask you questions about the decisions you make? Again, not the why, like why do I have to obey, but why? Like, how is this good? How is this wise? You know, you can say, because I said so, when you've got a three-year-old who says why, like 75 times every 25 minutes, like that's necessary. They need to learn, like mom and dad are in charge, and if they say something, you get in the minivan and you go with them. But when they're getting older, and especially when they're becoming a teenager and they're being influenced by all sorts of things, by all sorts of corporations that have nothing more for them to get addicted to and hooked on their products, their shows, their view of life. So again, they'll spend more money and make these people profits. Like you wanna be the ones that your parents or that your kids feel like they can go to and ask questions. You wanna be the ones that the Lord is using to shape their view of God, the world, and everything. And so to do that, you want something more than an appeal to power because I said so, but that's a good question. Let's talk about that. And that's why Paul reminds us that parenting in Christ, it means that it's, it's actually not your discipline or your instruction or your wisdom or your, your skill at this that matters most. It's ultimately the Lord's discipline and the Lord's instruction in which you're called to raise your children. And a lot of times, again, as I said at the beginning, we can make this about parenting techniques, like what's the Christian way to discipline your kids and to punish them? What's the Christian way to educate your kids? Do you homeschool? Do you private school, public school? All those kinds of questions, which can be really good and really important for each individual family to think through. But the main thing that Paul's talking about here is much deeper and much simpler than that. He's saying that raising your kids in the discipline of the Lord, it means you help them see in their life as it's actually unfolding day by day by day, how God is both good and present and at work in their lives. It's helping them see that Hebrews 12 is true, that God is a good father who loves his children, and because he's a good father who loves his children, he is at work in their lives, disciplining not just in terms of punishing mistakes, but disciplining as in discipling, shaping, growing to be more like him. And it's, that doesn't come naturally to us, and so God gives parents the unique opportunity to be there in the good and the bad with their kids. And to be able to, even sometimes before they're ready to see it, you can remember, like, this moment's gonna come back, and they can't hear this yet, but there's gonna come a day where they can understand where God was in that moment. And so you, as a parent, get to read your kid's story sometimes back to them to help them understand, here's how God is good to you, and I've seen his faithfulness, or I've seen you grow in this way, son, daughter. That has power. The Lord uses that to bring grace and peace to your kids because your words over them really mean something to them. So think about how this shapes the way we think about our family life. Just like marriage is a sacred canopy in Christ, our homes can become sacred refuges and safe havens for everyone involved, parents and children. They become places to discover who we are in Christ, places where it's safe to fail, places where it's safe to be wrong and ask a question and not know, places where you can run to when the world is beating you up real bad. 
Places where you know you're gonna be loved and welcomed by these people in a way that just smells of heaven because it's good, because these people, yes, they've got mess too, but they've got my back, they love me. Listen to how John Stott summarizes all of this. He says, the discipline and instruction in which parents are to bring up their children, Paul writes, are the Lord's. Behind the parents who teach and discipline their children, there stands the Lord himself. It is he who is the chief teacher and administrator of discipline. Certainly the overriding concern of Christian parents is not just that their children will submit to their authority, but that through this, they will come to know and obey the Lord. And so as we think about applying all of this and you know, we have a holiday weekend, um, the way to, to start again is assessing where, where are we at? And so think about where's your mind, where's your heart in this? And so for children and teenagers, Quite simply, do you believe that your parents are a good gift from God? Um, yes, sometimes you get annoyed with them. Yes, sometimes you feel like they don't understand. Yes, sometimes you're like, how do you guys not know how to use an iPhone? All those silly things. But at root, do you believe that your parents are a good gift from God? And then parents, do you believe that God has entrusted you with your children in order to use you as a blessing for their good in Christ? What I mean by that is do you recognize that yeah, there's a lot of pressure about you know, helping your kid get through school, get good grades, maybe go to college, maybe find a job, maybe find a spouse, all those things that we tend to be really anxious about. But at root, do you believe that God has entrusted you with people made in his image so that he can use you to be a blessing for them so they might know him better? And so what we see then in family life is that we don't have to get through the messiness of all of that, to get through the messiness of learning how do I obey my parents when I really don't want to, or messiness of how do I disciple this kid who has energy level that's like 16 times what I have after my fifth cup of coffee. Like that's messy, it's hard, and it's tempting to be like, I just gotta get through that, then we can do this. But in reality, it's right there in the midst of the mess that Jesus is at work in our lives the most, helping us grow. And so we need to cultivate eyes to see and ears to hear in the power of the Spirit to see those opportunities and to take hold of them. And that's a great thing to do together as families and as a church family. Now, with all of that in mind, if you would, um, please turn back to the text. We're going to pick up in verse 5 and read on through verse 9 and talk about our work life in Christ. So Paul writes this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that where whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, when we come to a text like this and Paul um, says some things that are very specific to his cultural context, we, we can have some big questions. For example, why doesn't Paul just absolutely, utterly denounce the institution of slavery as such right here? What does the Bible teach about these issues? What does it say about slavery in history? And these are real questions that we have to wrestle with. And there are, there are two different types of questions here. On the one hand, there's a question of church history. Why is there so much in church history that is just rank with sin and that ought to cause us to mourn and shed tears and, and repent? Like, why is that there? 
Um, and those are good questions. And then there's also the question of, well, what, what does God's word actually say? What is Paul actually saying right here? As we step into this part of the text, we need to be very clear about the circumstances in which Paul was writing. The Roman institution of slavery was different in some respects from the slavery that is a horrific part of our own nation's heritage. And that again, should cause us to mourn and repent and weep. For Rome, one of the biggest differences was that it was not tied specifically to race and there was a way for Roman slaves to sometimes buy their freedom. They could earn money, they could sometimes purchase their way out of it. But in both cases, thousands of human beings were abused and murdered and mistreated under both institutions. And so, although many Roman slaves could eventually buy their freedom, many more, and many of whom Paul was talking to, suffered under people who didn't care about them. And so, what's Paul saying here? The key thing to remember first is to remember that Paul is not writing public policy. Like, he doesn't have an audience with the Roman emperor or the governor of Ephesus here. He is talking to the Ephesian church. And here's the amazing thing, that already, by God's grace, as the gospel is going forth and spreading throughout the Roman Empire, here is a church that does have both bondservants and masters together in worship. That alone was amazing already. And so Paul's goal is he's not in a position where he can help change the fabric of their entire society, but he's saying, these people are together. How do I help them love each other as they were always meant to do in Christ, even when society's gonna say something very false about their relationship? And so we have to understand how radical that truly is because Paul's charge to bond servants, it may have shocked them at first. They may have thought like, hey, now that I'm in Christ, everything's gonna change. My circumstances are gonna change overnight. And as we see in Paul's letter to Philemon and then in 1 Corinthians 7, if you were to read those things, you'll see Paul does say, hey, if you can get your freedom, then avail yourself of the opportunity, do it. But at the same time, Paul is very concerned and very pastorally aware of the fact that many of the people who are in this church, they're not gonna have that opportunity. And he doesn't want them to feel like, well, if I can't buy my freedom, which is the only message of hope that Rome had to offer them, then my life is meaningless. And Paul says, no, no. Your circumstances may not change, but you are in Christ and you have value too. And so even now, you have value and your life is, is valuable and worthwhile. He wants to remind them that the gospel is so powerful and Jesus is so good that even if they can't change their circumstances, they can still live a meaningful life that glorifies God. That's why he urges them, hey, work with sincerity, work with integrity, because you're not working for man, you're working for God. And he sees you, he sees everything you do, and it can be pleasing to him, and he sees how it's good, and it's gonna mean something to him. And so you have to think about how revolutionary that was, because Paul is talking again to people who are told by the world that what you do doesn't mean anything. And we can do whatever we want to you. And Paul's saying, no, no, even in those circumstances, God is with you and he loves you. And then notice too, again, how radical it is that he gives, he tells uh, masters in this situation, he says, do exactly the same. In other words, y'all have the same work ethic. It's not one option for, for bond servants and one option for those who are in charge in Rome. He's saying you all need to relate to one another in the same exact way. And then he goes after the real rub of the issue and he says, stop your threatening because you are also subjects of the great almighty God. It is he who rules over you both, not you who rule over some other people just because you happen to have status or power. And he's telling them then that this changes their relationship. For Paul to say, 
that masters and bondservants in Rome would interact as brothers and sisters in Christ is a bombshell. The brightest minds in the ancient world couldn't get close to that. Like Aristotle is held up as this great philosopher in the classical world, and all he could say about bondservants was that they were in sold tools. And he's like, well, insofar as they're humans, because you know I'm Aristotle, I've got all these categories, and I can make distinctions. I guess insofar as humans, maybe you could kind of relate to them as friends, but really, no. And then you've got the Stoics, and they come along, and they start talking about the universal brotherhood of all mankind, but even then, they're not really treating bondservants well. And then here comes Paul in the name of Jesus Christ, and he says, no, in Christ you are all brothers and sisters. You are all made in God's image. That was revolutionary. That changed things. And it did change things over time. You can ask any historian, whether they're Christian or not, this message is what would change the fabric of the world. And so the amazing thing is that in the midst of these circumstances, in the midst of unideal and awful circumstances, the gospel can come in and it can break down those walls of hostility and it can bring a new way of living every single day. And the amazing thing is that Jesus still to this day wants the hearts of both the oppressors and the oppressed and he wants not just to take one side but to break down the sides and make a new people together in Christ. Do we believe that still? He wants to unite all things to himself. So listen to how Sinclair Ferguson puts this. He says, the gospel works anywhere. Nothing can hinder it, whether physical imprisonment, which Paul was um, at that very moment experiencing, or the social chains of slavery, which undoubtedly some of his hearers knew at first hand. In our own time, the gospel has advanced in many countries in the world in the face of violent opposition and persecution. Nothing, ultimately, can thwart the power of the gospel Here then we have apostolic teaching on how the gospel of grace functions in a social order we find intolerable. And so again, there are good questions there and if there are more questions you'd have, we'd love to explore that together. But one of the questions we have to answer is, so what does this have to do with the way we work in the 21st century? How does this apply to us today in very different economic systems with a very different type of society? And the first of all, I think the main thing we see is that the point of our work changes because we are in Christ. And that's really important because you have to ask yourself, where do you often feel like work is something, again, you just have to get through? Like, I don't see the point in this. I'm just clocking in, clocking out, uh, making these sandwiches or working in this factory or crunching this data just to get paid so I can, you know, um, pay the bills. And, you know, if I stop thinking about it, it just seems like a cycle and I don't even know what the point is. But the point that Paul is saying is you work for Christ and you get to work from a good intention, a good heart, and God sees that goodness and he can use it in this world because he has made this world. And you remember back to Eden, he made us to take care of this world. And so even in the wake of the fall, our work can be good and valuable in this world. You think of just people who are teachers or doctors or counselors or stay-at-home moms and coaches. Like You get to work with people made in God's image every day. Like you get to help them see like you're valuable and you, you are not just a bunch of chemicals and, and um, materials, like you are an image bearer. And you may not, depending on circumstances, get to say all of that in terms of Christian teaching, but you get to live it out. You get to treat them in a way that, that shows them by the way you love them and serve them that they matter. If you're a landscaper or an architect or an artist, like you're, you're a creator, you get to cultivate beauty in God's creation and help remind us that not everything's utility. 
but that God is a God who delights in the beauty of his creation. You get to participate in that. Or if you're a lawyer or a leader or a social worker, you get to pursue justice and equity and you get to stand with those who are in darkness and help bring them into the light of Christ. And you get to be in in those, those sacred spaces. And so the point is that whatever our work is, there's a bigger point to it than whatever is said on your contract or on your name tag and your, your title. You work for a greater purpose. And that then flows into the way we work. That's also changed because we're in Christ. Again, Paul says, work with integrity and sincerity. Don't cut corners. The clock is not just ticking against you. Don't may feel like you've got to get this job done in three minutes or you know, this deadline's coming. Don't cut corners because the, a good job is a good job. You know, let your work reflect the fact that you think it matters and that you're not just working to look good, to be a people pleaser, but that you're doing a good job because you can see that, that the Lord cares about the way you reflect his character. God has not cut corners in his work, and so he calls us to do the same. And I think that's especially true, and that point about how being united to Christ changes the way we work, that's really important for those of us who maybe you have a job where it feels really meaningless because it's repetitive, or it's not the job you wanted. You're like, man, I went to college to study this, and I'm working here in a restaurant overnight at um, a shipping warehouse, or these things that a lot of times most folks don't wanna do or they don't wanna do it for a long time. But Paul is saying like, no, even there, you are still united to Christ, and even there, your work matters. And it, it is good work, you can do it well, and that will create opportunities to have conversations with people. Then the other thing, and I think this applies um, no matter where you work, one of the greatest ways we can reflect our, the character of God and the way we work is how we respond to conflict at work in all sorts of ways. Because one of the biggest complaints anyone has in any industry, like if you just Google like, hey, what do most people complain about at their job? It's always people. You know, management stinks, they don't care. Even like arguments and like disputes about pay, it's not just about like the finances, it's usually a matter of equity and fairness. And so as Christians, those who have experienced firsthand the reconciliation that we have in Christ, we get to be sent out into all of these countless places where we work and we get to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Like think about how often it's so easy, like if one person starts bagging on the boss, like everyone can just jump in and dogpile him or her with all your grievances and all your complaints. Think about how it would be different if you were the one person who went and said, hey boss, you know, are you aware that Sometimes the way you talk really makes people feel put down and small. That's terrifying, by the way, and it's scary, but you can have the courage to do that because you know you're not ultimately working for that person but for the Lord. And maybe the Lord's put you in such a place that you could step into that person's life and help them work through something that no one in their life, maybe since their childhood, has ever dared take the time to love them well and be honest with them. You know, or when two people at work get sideways, instead of drawing up lines and taking sides, you can be the person who has grace and peace and is humble enough and calm enough to be like, hey, we can talk about this, we can work through it. You know, that's just good, and, and the world needs that. And so often it's the things that drive us crazy the most at work, that if we think about it from the perspective of our union with Christ, those are the best opportunities to lean in and to, to display God's character. Because again, where it's messy, there's opportunity. And where it's not messy, we're probably kidding ourselves or blind to the opportunities in front of us. And so some great questions for us to consider as we think about how does our union with Christ apply to us in our working lives is first, just how does the way you work reveal who you're truly serving? You know, are you serving a paycheck? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving your boss 
more than your family, more than the Lord? And is the way you work bringing grace and peace to those you work with? Another way to think about that might be, what do your coworkers hear you complain about, and what do they hear and see you celebrate? It doesn't have to be really cheesy where, you know, every Monday you come in and you're like, man, church was awesome, and like, I, I sang this great song, or the, the preacher said this, and now if that's true, then great, do it. But it's not saying, you know, you've got to be awkward about it or, or forced, but it is saying be intentional. For me, I'm often like, man, I wonder if, if the people I work with at, at the restaurants I work at, if they hear me get more excited about some dumb Star Wars trailer and about the fact that I get to work with them and my job is literally like help them grow as leaders. Like, do they feel like I'm excited about that or more about entertainment? And especially what people hear you complain about. We have a real opportunity in a world that has no patience for people, even though we're all people, for us not to complain about people, but to actively and proactively pursue gently and with peace reconciliation. That's gonna mean something. And that could very well be an avenue for our church to reach out and bring people in and to celebrate not just um, you having the opportunity to work well in the Lord, but maybe even to see people come here because they noticed something different about the way you worked. And they're like, I wanna learn more about that. And maybe that would be the avenue the Lord would be pleased to use you at work to bring these people to know Christ. And we could celebrate as a church, the family getting bigger. And so as we wrap up, it's important then to see Ephesians 6, one through nine, it teaches us that in Christ, our life at home and at work provides us with daily opportunities for us to grow in our love of God and love of neighbor. Both unto God's glory, it matters, and for the life of the world. So again, when you think about, as Paul closes that text, and he says, you know, we, we serve a master with whom there is no partiality. God um, is not someone who's just looking at status. He doesn't favor those who are in charge, and he's watching how we work. Sometimes some of us might feel really anxious, be like, oh man, like, is God just watching me to mess up and making sure I do it right? But no, he's watching you as a father who loves you. He's watching you as the one who says, hey, I see what you're doing and I appreciate it. Because we all feel like we get a lot of criticism in life. But when someone comes along and they see you working in your family or they see you working at your job and they say, I see what you're doing and I appreciate that. Like our hearts just swell. It's so like this matters. And so Paul's saying that's how God thinks of us in our families and at work. It matters and he's pleased because he's there with us already working. And so let's turn to him now in prayer and pray that he'd help us to continue to grow, to have eyes that would see all these opportunities, not so that we can be perfect, but so that we can, we can lean into the messiness and grow together. So would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that, God, you are sovereign. Lord, you reign. And so, Lord, we serve not ourselves and not our jobs, as stressful as they can be, but we serve you as our king. And Lord, in our homes, um, parents are called to lead, but they are stewards of your image bearers. You are all of our king, both parents and children. And so, Lord, help us to know just the freedom and the joy it is to have a life in Christ. Lord, we thank you that your gospel is powerful and that even if our circumstances are not what we expected and not what we want, Lord, our life is still meaningful now, not, e not just when we get through those things, but right now, you're with us. And our suffering has meaning, it has purpose, so, Lord, would you grow our families at this church? Help um, children and teenagers to know that their parents are a good gift and to hold fast to that even when they don't want to, Lord. Help them to grow, to know you, to know your love, to know your wisdom, to know how to live in this very broken and very difficult world. Lord, would you give parents encouragement and patience 
to raise their kids well, to not provoke them to anger, Lord, but to point them to Christ. Lord, draw us together as a church that would love families well, where we would be quick to not critique each other's techniques and styles and behavior, but that we'd rally behind each other in times of need, running to the throne of grace together in prayer and in comfort and in discipleship. And Lord, would you be with us in our work. Lord, help us, whether our work seems um, pointless, Lord, or overwhelming, help us to see how you're there already at work and giving us opportunities to grow. We give you thanks for all of these things. Would you bless us this weekend and would you bless the rest of our worship? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.